So message today is a, uh, a follow-up to last week's message, if you weren't here. Uh, that's out there online. You'll find that under guest speakers. Um, but we've been talking about the spiritual realm, and this is part two then of that. Um, if you recall, uh, uh, one of my key goals of, of last week was just this idea of the need to lift our heads um, we're so consumed with life in this physical realm and all the demands that it has on us. I mean, I, I heard some comments this morning I can relate about the aches and pains of bodily life and all the challenges that go with, you know, managing ourselves and all the physical environment around us. But in the midst of that, that is not our ultimate reality, right? Our ultimate rea- reality is found in the spiritual realm and that is the eternal aspect of, of uh, our existence. So, you know, last week we were looking at, um, from a biblical perspective, uh, the fact that there are other created moral beings as part of this spiritual realm, namely angels. We looked at angels and then fallen angels or the demonic side of the spiritual realm uh, So today, I want to begin with uh, the same parable that we looked at last week uh, and discuss further this world that we live in, the spiritual kingdom of Satan, in contrast and in conflict with the kingdom of God. And and hopefully, I I hope to bring us to a point where we're talking about um, what's our calling as followers of Jesus in this intersection between the physical and the spiritual realms. So if you would, let's turn again to Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds. Uh, This, for the sake of time, I'm going to forego reading the original basic parable and instead focus on Jesus' interpretation of that parable that's found a little bit farther in the verse. So you'll find this, um, Matthew 13, verses 36 through 43. And uh, in the Rack Bibles there, you'll find that on page 819. So let me read that. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So the last major topic we looked at last week was what are the sources of evil in the world? And we concluded that mankind is one significant contributor. We discussed demonic forces as a contributor and then we touched on what the New Testament calls the world. And I made a commitment to bring a little bit more this week so let's pick it up with that. So in the brief context of this parable of the weeds, we get this sense that the world at a minimum 
seems to be a place of risk. I think that would resonate with our reality, right? There is clearly some opposing forces at work in this world. Now, the word world used here in the Greek is cosmos, spelled with a K. And we obviously derive our cosmos spelled with a C in the English language from that word. Unlike the common uh, cosmos that we use in the English language, which we would most often denote with the universes outside of us, in this New Testament context, the word is being uh, used here to refer to the earth versus the heavens. Essentially, the world is the dwelling place of mankind. Further, in most of the uses here in the New Testament of this word, there's usually some tie to evil, some sense of evil associated with it. And from last week, we're not surprised by that. Uh, we, we, we get, we understand the tie. We know that from last week that uh, the evil sense comes from Satan's influence over this world. Um, and this is a force that dominates the life of the unbeliever the spiritually unregenerate, those without the Holy Spirit, those who are spiritually dead to God. So this New Testament world concept, it, it recognizes in that there is a power for evil at work that's both organized and operates on a vast scale and is generally efficient towards its goals. It's clearly stated in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, spiritually dead, unaware, unconscious of God, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Now, it's real important that we, we, we're not misled or confused by this, this conflict that's, that's, uh, that's in place. This is not some kind of hopeless form of what philosophers would call dualism. It's not some epic fight between good and evil with some uncertain outcome, right? You know, we covered last week that there is a final judgment that's already in place for all of evil, we recognize that Satan's power and influence is allowed for a time to operate by a sovereign God within his creation. He is sovereign, still in ultimate control. He is never not in control, and God has allowed this for a time. So we know the sure outcome he to he's told us, and I've commented earlier, too, that this is essentially a conflict of kingdoms. Um, and a major theme of the ministry of Jesus was announcing and inaugurating the kingdom of God. And so what I want to do is explore this concept of kingdom. It's one that we really don't relate to today. It's not in common use or, or uh, in practice. Uh, in the physical realm the world that we live in, uh, we would define kingdom as simply a place where someone with both power and authority, the ability, in other words, to exercise the power, that person reigns or rules over a realm, some kind of place in which to exercise that power and authority. 
So similarly, uh, in the spiritual realm, Satan has a kingdom in this world where he has power and authority to exercise it over all those that are in rebellion against God. Those are people like Satan and his minions who refuse to recognize their dependence on God and give him his rightful glory and honor. Glory and honor that he alone deserves and he alone is the only safe one to receive. Rather, and this is the hard thing, uh, but people in rebellion are actually blindly given Satan honor and glory. They're submitting to his reign and rule whether they realize it or not. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 tells us, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, sadly. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, so a core objective of Satan is to keep people from finding the love of God. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We've looked at this passage. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is the true nature of things. So understand, the world outside of Christ is both blind to who they are serving and the influence that he, Satan, has on their lives. They'd be utterly blind to God except for his grace, right? Extended to every person through general revelation and through the drawing, calling, conviction role of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person, the person of the world, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, right? For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's a great reality that we need to grapple with uh, as believers, followers of Christ, and recognizing the true state of all those around us that are not yet followers of Christ. That they are blinded. They, uh, they truly cannot see and discern that that's spiritual. It's foolish to them. So, going back to the point of the fact that the world uh, used in this context as a source of evil, let me unbundle that a little bit more as it relates to this temporary kingdom of Satan. So the inherent evil nature of the world comes from Every system, every institution, every belief, every religion, government, philosophy, any other source that, self, uh, that sets itself against the gospel of Jesus Christ and denies God his rightful place over creation. That's really pervasive. Let me read that again. The inherent evil nature of the world comes from every system, every institution, belief, religion, government, philosophy, and any other source that sets itself against the gospel of Jesus and denies God his rightful place over his creation. 
now all of these sources are born out of both the sin of man and demonic forces, but understand that they are empowered and sustained by Satan. They permeate everything in this world that's not of God. Their impact is on both the physical realm in all of its pain and misery and on the spiritual realm with eternal consequences, right? I could say a lot more on this. And the one thing I, w- I would want to impart is the distinction uh, for us and the challenge for us is so subtle. Uh, it takes great spiritual wisdom to discern the difference between elements with merit because there's some truth in the mix of all that. There's some piece of truth there. But it's often coupled with some manipulative, deceptive philosophy against God and against the gospel of Jesus. But for sake of time this morning, I won't go any deeper in that, but to redeem this, what I really want to move to is turning to the kingdom of God. Matthew 4.17 tells us, from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is, ha- is near. This kingdom of God uh, is referred to many times throughout the New Testament in different ways. The kingdom of God is also expresses the kingdom of Christ. Colossians 1.13 says, calls it the kingdom of his beloved son. And Peter in 2 Peter 1 names it the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So what exactly is this kingdom that's come? So if we, we kind of build on our, our basic kingdom definition we had before, at its very simplest, the kingdom of God, this, great, this is significant, the kingdom of God is the divine authority and the power to rule given by the Father to his Son as Messiah. So the kingdom of God is the divine authority and power to rule given by the Father to the Son as Messiah. You'll recall Jesus when he was addressing his feuding disciples over who was the greatest in the kingdom in Luke 22. It says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So to better understand the direction and the scope of the kingdom of God, there's a really very central passage of scripture that I want to focus on now, and I'm going to derive several, I think, important parts uh, or points coming off of that. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're looking at verses 21 through 28. So based on that kingdom definition of the kingdom of God, listen for this then. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted 
who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So here's some key points we pull out of this passage. First, understand the object of the kingdom of God. It's the redemption of mankind. It's the redemption of you and me. It is the souls of individual people. That's the object of the kingdom of God. That's the point of conflict between these two opposing kingdoms. But the point here is the kingdom of God is delivering people out of the power of evil, breaking the curse of death, and mending what would otherwise be eternal separation from God. So Jesus will exercise his kingdom authority that he's been given until he's subdued everything that's hostile to God. When all the enemies are under his feet, then he will return his messianic kingdom back to the Father. The kingdom will return to the Father when that's accomplished. So the image here is is one of a lesser power, the kingdom of Satan, the world, trying to stand against God's kingdom. And the lesser kingdom must be conquered. Revelation 11.15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You can see the transition that's taking place here. So the kingdom of God spans both the physical and the spiritual realms. It's in parallel relationship to the salvation and the power of God operating through the authority of Christ. Another way of saying that is as as Jesus exercises his authority in power that extends salvation and destroys opposition, the kingdom of God is advancing. Do you get that? Let me say that again. So as Jesus exercises his authority that God has given him in power and in extending salvation to people and destroying opposition against God, the kingdom of God is advancing. It is this perpetual process, continually moving forward. Revelation 12.10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So the kingdom is dynamic. It is changing. There's this sense that it has come and it is coming. It continues to come. And it continues to this very day to invade the kingdom of Satan and take away Satan's realm in this world. Colossians 1.13 again. He has delivered us We're the realm, we're the ground that's being lost out from under Satan's kingdom and control. From the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, it's not the physical stuff, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. John 3, 5 tells us, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So one question that comes to mind, why this kind of evolving nature? Why not one, this one massive cataclysmic event and God just takes over and, and wipes it out? Don't know the total answer of that, but I think there's, there's two answers here. Um, first is found in the very role of Jesus as Messiah. And, and this is significant because it rolls ultimately up to who we are and where we fit. But there's this dual role, this dual function of Jesus as Messiah. He initiates the kingdom. He's inaugurating the kingdom with his first coming. And he is invading the earthly kingdom of Satan. And so his first effort is to bring salvation into all who would believe and receive the forgiveness of sins. Breaking the power of sin in life. Breaking the and freeing people from the tyranny and the death, uh, through tyranny of death and through his sacrificial death and resurrection. And so from the outset of his earthly ministry, Jesus was demonstrating the power of God over that of Satan. Every physical healing, every demonic uh, delivery from oppression, the very forgiveness of sin, there was no power that Satan could bring that could stand against Jesus. So it was a very active demonstration of Satan's overthrow with every one of those events. And there's many in Scripture. So essentially, according to the parable, the strong man was being bound, demonstrated by Jesus's, uh, and further demonstrated by Jesus giving authority to his disciples, right, to go out and do the same things. Luke 10, 19, he was giving them power over all the enemy, over all the powers of the enemy. There was no power the enemy held that his disciples could not overcome. And the challenge is, and I think we need to consider, is that we stand in that same power today. We're in the salvation phase of the kingdom of God. But the judgment phase of the kingdom is yet to come with Jesus' ultimate return, right? At that point, according to this passage we previously looked at, when everything in opposition to God is subject to his reign and rule. So the second part of this messianic role of Jesus is to bring judgment. And then another key factor, I think, that lets us continue as a progressive event is the very patience and grace and love of God. As Peter reminded his readers in the first century, uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, right? But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come and reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10. And if you recall, that's actually the core message of our uh, parable of study that we began with this morning. The angels will gather his people and judgment will come on Satan and his followers. 
at that time a transformation or a rebirth, if you will, of the material realm will take place according to Jesus in Matthew 19. He says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So the kingdom of God has indeed come. And it kind of brings to, to mind for me the closing thoughts of the Apostle Paul as he's been speaking to the church in Rome, in Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So let me see if I can summarize what's happened. This is so important. Please get this. So before the culmination of God's ultimate plan, before Satan and evil are destroyed, both before the millennial reign of Christ and the new heaven and the new earth, the kingdom of God has come and has invaded this world and is overwhelming the kingdom of Satan in spiritual power, bringing all tribes, all nations, all tongues, and this is the key, bringing them in advance into the blessings of forgiveness and righteousness before God, the blessings of new life in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And all of that is part of the age to come. But it's here now. We have these blessings today. Might say, so what? By the way, it's one of my favorite acidic questions, particularly in religious contexts. So what? How does that affect me here in Redmond, Washington? Roughly, what, 1,930 years since the last scripture that we have read uh, was written. But then we have to ask, did we miss the memo? Uh, or did we just forget something? Um, we know Jesus ascended to the Father. The Holy Spirit came to us. But maybe what we forgot is the mission of the advancement of the kingdom of God was given to us. The call on the Apostle Paul and his team that he shares in 2 Corinthians 5.14, I don't believe is just Paul's calling. Uh, it's, I believe, the calling for every follower of Jesus. Uh, how could we not all say in personal testimony what Paul says? And he goes on and says, for the love of Christ controls, I, I like another version, translation of that, compels is also a word used for that. The love of Christ compels us, the very love that we've all experienced, right? 
because we've concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. He died for all, that those who live, you and me, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We believe we've experienced this truth, right? Verse 17, he continues, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come now, right now. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and, get this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Christ, uh, in Christ God was reconciling the word to himself, counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, right? So then our right message to this lost and broken world is, in Paul's words, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a great calling. You see, there is our greatest purpose in this life. A recent conference speaker that uh, I had the privilege of hearing um, recently likened Christians today to people that are laid out on loungers in the sun, on the ship's deck, with a margarita in hand, all the while waiting for the ship to arrive in heaven. Unfortunately, totally oblivious to the fact that they're actually in the middle of a spiritual battle over the eternal future of the souls of man. And they're not on the deck of a cruise ship, but on the deck of a battle cruiser. Uh, I have to admit, sometimes uh, that describes me. Uh, and there's, there's some merit to that. If any part of that's true, though, how do we, how did we come to that state? What? How did, how did we get there? What's happened or not happened? I think in part, though, and this maybe is a little bit of the thrust of these messages, is there is an enemy who has played a role towards that end. I do think at some level we've been deceived. Sometimes we've been derailed, often neutralized, certainly sidelined. Uh, it's kind of like, and we can relate to this as, as a, a multi-sport town in Seattle. It's like we're wearing the team jersey. We've got the uniform. We know our name is on the team roster, but we're sitting on the bench. We're out of the game. And, and maybe we, if we were really honest, we're unsure if we were called on to go into the game, what it is that we're actually supposed to do. Wow. Really? I think to help unbundle that, let me take us all the way back to the garden. Let's go back to the beginning. 
and kind of look at God's perspective. At the very fall of man, we yielded to the temptation of the enemy, that we joined him in his independence from God, his rebellion against God. God's creation at that point was perfect. It was very good. From the very beginning, we were designed to be in this deep, intimate relationship with God and one another in unconditional love where none of us could have found any greater sense of value. We were secure in the garden. It provided all of our physical needs. There was no worry where the next meal would come from or no worry that there won't be enough. And we had purpose. We were co-workers with God in the care of his creation. But we broke all that with sin. We lost unconditional love, ultimate value, total security, and sustaining purpose. But see, we're made for those things. We're divinely wired for those things. And every person who's lived since then has been driven to find those things in this life, desperate to fill those voids. Most of our efforts to restore what's been lost has been of our own design, still excluding God in his ways, and essentially in the course of that, we're perpetrating sin. We're still rebelling. But in the process, you know, none of us has ever experienced unconditional love, no matter how good your parents were or anyone else in your life. We've never really experienced real value and worth or lasting security or a sustaining, fulfilling purpose. And then to our tragic start in this uh, sin-broken life, we've added layer after layer of wounds over our lifetimes. And we've been both victims of others and perpetrators on others, all in our independent, self-centered attempts to fill those voids. And unbeknownst perhaps to us, but the enemy has been right alongside us in that, reinforcing all of our illegitimate efforts to fill those needs in us that can only be filled by God and his love. And see, Jesus came to reverse that curse, to restore us, to recreate us back to the original creation increasingly becoming who God intended us to be from the very beginning. As he did in the garden, Satan uses the same tactics today that he used then. He attacks the word of God, the character of God, who we are in relationship to God. He hones in on those deficits, all those things that we have in differing measure, this lack of love and security and value and purpose. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war against according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Strongholds are fortified enemy locations. Fortifications where the enemy can launch new incursions into your life. The power to destroy strongholds. We destroy every argument, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take 
every thought captive to obey Christ. What I hope you see out of that passage is the primary demonic uh, focus is in our minds and hearts. The ideas that we embrace, the beliefs that we hold true, the ultimate convictions that drive our decisions and then ultimately our behaviors. So if you kind of see how this matches up, so through our own sin and rebellion, plus the hurts and the wounds of life in this broken world, plus the deception of the enemy reinforcing and promoting lies, we've come to some horrific conclusions about God, about ourselves, about others, and the purpose of this life. Maybe equally worse, perhaps worse uh, than that, we've surrendered, we've compromised, we've become tolerant of the consequences and we're spiritually ignorant then. And we come to this conclusion believing that this is all there is. This is as good as it gets. This must be the Christian walk, huh? And as a result of that, there's no passion in our faith. There's no joy. There's little peace. Therefore, there is very little testimony. Testimony of what God has done. Because there's no power at work in our lives that would reveal Jesus through us to this lost world around us. We're effectively on the sidelines if we allow that to take place in our lives. And it is, I believe, the challenge of every one of us in different flavors, different ways, to different degrees. And actually, where we're led to and where we get trapped in is we become simply self-absorbed. We're consumed with our own needs. And that's all Satan needs to achieve in the lives of believers to get us into the sidelines. So here's some clues. Some things that can be true of our lives in different degrees, again, that may give us an insight or should open our eyes and have us ask the harder questions. Lord, what's going on? Holy Spirit, reveal but is your life plagued with issues like fear? You know, fear at its heart is centered in an unbelief towards God. It can be expressed as fear towards mankind. Anger, is that a dominating factor for you? Life's not going the way you want it. The offensive of others are mounting up. Another common challenge for us is this one of significance feeling insignificant, feeling inferior, convinced that you're not loved or valued for who you are, leads us into all kinds of forms of helplessness. Another expression of uh, hopelessness is depression, right? Do you just feel passive towards life? Just letting life happen, unengaged, unconcerned, or maybe you have a pervasive attitude of feeling rejected. This is, this is core. This is a central one that all of us have experienced at some level. Uh, 
where we have felt that we didn't measure up, we weren't good enough, we couldn't be good enough, the responses of others and the circumstances of life have reinforced that and we feel this sense of rejection. It leads to all kinds of uh, challenges in our lives. Intense distrust, a critical spirit, defensiveness. For some of us, shame is a dominating factor. This painful feelings of guilt over past behavior, whether it was your behaviors or behaviors against you, again, leading to a sense of hopelessness. And for some of us, we can get trapped in unforgiveness. We're holding on to failures and the offensive of others, hoping to somehow extract some penalty for the pain for what they've done to us. These are just some of the areas of our lives where the enemy builds strongholds, wants to keep reinforcing those kinds of things. And it keeps us unnecessarily, not just sidelined, but oftentimes unnecessarily suffering. And do I even need to say that those are things that are not of the will of God? Those are not his will for our lives. Ultimately, when we unbundle those two, there is sin on our part as we participate and help perpetuate those things in our lives. But those things are also ensuring that we're not experiencing the freedom that Jesus said he came to give us. And what do we do and how do we respond to that? A couple of thoughts. The Apostle Paul might tell us, Romans 12, 1 and 2, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. James might tell us, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. The apostle Peter, I think, would admonish us and say, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, again, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. You remember, Pastor Ben, past weeks, this resist is not a passive, it is an active uh, verb to resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, very practically, um, uh, one of the ways that this works out in our daily walk, and Pastor Ben introduced this to us several weeks ago, the four R's created by pastor author Mike Riches. Um, just a great tool for everyday living. Um, and before I review again the four R's with this, let me preface it with this. You know, as you're going through the struggles of life and the pains, uh, uh, some there's little we can do about there are some that we are active participants in and we are also uh, being negatively influenced by. But in all those times, I would encourage you to take your struggles, 
and the pains in life and prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the roots of what's really going on in your soul. Soul we define as your mind, will, and emotions. That innermost part of you that is the eternal part that makes you uniquely you, your soul. That's what Satan's out to destroy. But ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, Lord, what, what's going on in my soul? Ask him to expose any lies and misbeliefs that you have about God or your identity in Jesus. One of the things that that assumes, though, is, is that you need to be in God's word and in prayer every day. That's why it's so important. We, we are constantly emphasizing that God's word is truth. That is our objective truth to guide us in this life. That is the only thing that we have in the voice of the Holy Spirit to combat the lies of the enemy. That's how you know that this is a lie because the word tells me this and I stand on the word, right? So we must be in the word. So going to the four R's with that preface. The first one is to repent when God makes clear to us and the pain of life and the suffering that we incur when, when the Holy Spirit gives us that insight and helps us see that we're on the wrong track to repent from that. Turn around. Stop. First, that means confessing, agreeing with God of where you've gone wrong in sin, and then receive his forgiveness. And the second R was to rebuke. Um, a lot of times when you find something that's pervasive in you, and it, what I refer you to is uh, my message on Palm Sunday, I shared with you my personal testimony of how I applied this to the issue of uh, discouragement in my life. And that had been a, a challenge for months or maybe a year or so. But I recognized that there was something more going on, uh, and it was pervasive. And despite my acknowledgement and awareness of it, I couldn't, I couldn't make that uh, uh, go away. I, I couldn't seem to break its hold on me. And those are the, some of the indicators to have a, a clear sense that now the enemy's at work here. Uh, there are lies that he's been telling me that I've been buying into. And so uh, I'd encourage you to, to go back and listen to that. It's just a real practical application of this. But So there are times when we actually need to rebuke Verbally, we rebuke any kind of demonic force that may be in play in our lives. And we do that in the name of the authority of Jesus in the power of his uh, death and resurrection. And we are saying, stop, be gone, don't return in the name of Jesus. The third R was to replace. So when we have now identified the lie that we've been living under, we've been buying into, but we now replace that with the word of God, the truth, and we commit to following that. We commit before God. I'm, going to, I'm making a conscious decision here to stop believing this lie and start believing this in faith. And so an appropriate time to ask the Holy Spirit, according to your word, Lord, would you renew my mind in this area? Would you bring renewal to my mind and heart? And the fourth one is then to receive. Um, 
And as, if you, if you think about the kingdom of God advancing in our personal lives, and this is kind of the forefront of the battle, but one of the battlefronts is in each one of our individual lives. But as, as we're yielding to and uh, submitting to the authority of God increasingly in our lives, the kingdom is advancing its territory in our lives as each aspect of our life that's not been under God's lordship has been turned over and oftentimes this is exactly what's happening as we relinquish sin and lies in one side turn it over to God and so there's this opportunity here to say Holy Spirit fill me afresh come now fresh into and take lordship over this new area of my life that I'm now yielding to you I'm letting go of this and I'm putting it into your hands in faith and then lastly rejoice in that process God's grace and peace and love has been extended to you practically and it will be palpable. You will know the difference. Believe that those things have occurred for you. So kind of moving to closing today, um, I would encourage you to embrace these biblical truths. Uh, Know them, receive them, recognize him as truth um, about you as a follower, as a child of God. This first passage, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, I'm going to personalize this a little bit and, and uh, insert the word you in a few places, but listen carefully. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves you, even when you were dead, in your trespasses made you alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised you up with him, seated you with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards you in Christ alone. This is your present reality. This is not future. This is not a statement of your physical location. The fact that's being expressed here is that you share in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ as he sits on his throne today due to God's grace and love to you. You've been given the same authority of Jesus in this kingdom battle here in this physical realm. So just as Jesus empowered his disciples, he sent them out, he said, and he gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. I believe that we have that kingdom power and authority today, and the expectation is that we would exercise it. Ephesians 6, 13 and 18. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, 
praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I wish we had time today to unbundle that, and that's going to be in our future study under Pastor Ben. Uh, but for the moment, I, would, I want you to understand, there's no chink in the armor of God. There's no Achilles heel here. There's no lack of equipping in this spiritual battle that you haven't been given. Perhaps there is only our lack of preparedness. And are we taking on and exercising the authority that's been given us? There's so, so much more that we could say uh, around this. Uh, I hope there's been some things of practical uh, application that might be helpful. Um, I'd go ahead and have the worship team come on back up here. Let me just close with this thought. I mean, I, I can't tell you exactly what the days ahead for any one of us look like or for that matter, as a body of believers here. But some of the convictions I do hold is is that whatever that is, I know that we're going to look more and more like Jesus. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he will continue to bring healing and freedom to each one of our lives because we all need more. I'd be the first to admit that. Ultimately, so that the love of Jesus will grow in us and through us and that we'll have a growing heart of Jesus. And as we do that, we will be more and more on mission with him in alignment with what he is already doing in the advancement of his kingdom until he comes for us, right? We together, by God's design, are the fullest expression of Jesus in this lost world. I want more. I hope you want more too. So I'd encourage you to lean in in the days to come. Be present. Don't miss gathering together. We, we lack both strength. We are not the complete body of Christ when we're alone. And we're, each one of us, uniquely gifted. And our past and present are increasingly being redeemed for the ultimate building up of one another to love and good works, right? And the spread of the gospel and the advancement of his kingdom faithfully until he comes again. So our calling is a great one, right? And our purpose has implications for eternity. So as we, uh, we transition to response this morning, um, you guys know, but I would invite you to uh, quietly perhaps take a little bit of time and assess before God, uh, Lord, what, what struggles have there been in my life? What are the areas that I've compromised? I've just accepted as if this is the best it can be or this is who I am. Is that really true, Lord? Am I believing a lie? As a result of that, have I been neutralized in this great spiritual realm battle? Um, Am I suffering unnecessarily? 
Am I allowing others to suffer unnecessarily? You know, like we said last week too, our sins are never affecting us alone, but we affect those around us. And Satan does a great job of making sure that we do that to a maximum effect. So prayerfully examine. Uh, and, uh, and maybe in the days of, ahead, because uh, sometimes it's not a quick thing. These are deep things, deep issues that have been well established in us. And there are layers on layers sometimes that are keeping those things buried and it takes time to get those back to the surface. But I believe that Jesus really wants to free you. And in that freedom, if you can envision this, the power that comes into your testimony, because for some of us, the testimony has grown old. We don't have a lot to say about how God has moved in our lives. That shouldn't be. That should be ever-growing, right? There's so much more. So much more. So, communion to the front and back, as always. The opportunity to give, and, and then as we, we uh, come to conclusion, just come wholeheartedly in, into, uh, uh, into worship as we conclude today.